We have designed our world, our community, our civilizations to be very transactional. Would you agree? Why do we have attorneys? To make sure that we have good transactions. To make sure that each party knows what, where the rules are, what they're supposed to give, what they're supposed to receive. And then you know, we have courts so that when people go outside of that, this transaction that has happened, that the, where the transaction has been broken, then the court has to speak into that to, to make it right. Uh, we have laws because, you know, we, we, um, we're making a transaction. Even like uh, the speed limit, which I know all of you obey, um, you know, is, is a transaction of, of sorts. You agree to go around the speed limit, and the cops agree not to stop you. That's supposed to be how it is. That's the law. We, you stay within the law, certain things happen. We have transactions. Even within, even within relationships, uh, we often, we often have, have, have transactions that go, that go on. Um, I'll do the dishes if you take out the trash. Transaction. Very, we're very transactional. And most of the time, you know, we would like it to be quid pro quo, right? Which, which means what? What's that? This for that. Thank you. Another attorney in the room. I love it. Right. This for that. Or, or what's, what's, the, what's the colloquialism? Right. You scratch. I'll, I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. Right. That we, we, that we would have this, this equal exchange. Or, you know, and again... Um, a transaction. You go to you go to the store. You you give them money. They give you the stuff that you want. Um, you've got to have enough. You know. You, you got to have enough money to do that. So very transactional. Oftentimes, uh, it, well, especially in the in ancient times, uh, religion was very transactional. Very transactional. The people believe if I sacrifice this, God will the gods will give me that. And so it's. Uh, very interesting to look at the, to look at it that way because we might not think of it that way very much, but that's sort of how it was. I do this, you do that, and so with God, there's this there's this transactional piece that people thought happened, and even in even amongst the Jews, there's this uh, there there is a sense that there's some transactions going on there, and uh, as you move into the, your favorite book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. Um, you, you, see, you see all these rules and regulations about the transactions. And what's, what's interesting about that and what some writers have written about that is for most of us, we're like, oh, why, is there all, why are there all these rules? Why all this writing? Why do they say it over and over and over again? But what, we, what we've come to think about that, or what some of us have come to think about that, is that it's actually a movement forward in, our, in, in, in the relationship with humanity and God because the transactions are prescribed. The law is very detailed. This is how many doves that get sacrificed. This is how many bulls. This is how, how many bushels of grain. This is how many. It's, it's, very, it's, 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 it's laid out very logically and so... You, you, you know what your relationship with God is. Whereas in, the, in other, um, what, we would have, what we would call now pagan religions, um, the, they didn't know what their standing with God was or with the gods were. They just hoped that they 
that they gave enough to get good rain or, or good crops or whatever. And so there was always this guessing about the transactions. So the Hebrew people and the ones who studied the law and wanted to, wanted to remain steadfast to the law, they, they understood that the, the, these transactions and believed that, okay, we do this and we're in the covenant. We do this and we stay in the covenant. The writer of Romans, a guy that we know as Paul, his original name, anybody know what his original name was? Saul, very good. Biblical scholars, excellent. We're doing, some, we're doing something right here. Um, his name was Saul. And, um, and, and so he, he was a Pharisee. And what that means is that Pharisees were often people who worked with their hands, but were very devout Jews. Very devout Hebrews. They, they were people who worked with their hands. So, they, so we, we believe Paul was like a tent maker, like that he made tents and sold them. That's, that, that's what he did for his livelihood. But while they were working with their hands, they would be talking about the law. They would be learning and studying and memorizing and repeating things and doing all that and seeking to very closely follow what, what the law said, what, what all of that, all of those things in Leviticus and all of that said, and, and trying to make sure that they were um, living up to the transaction that they, this covenant transaction that they had with God. As Jesus comes onto the scene, he um, begins to have a disagreement with, especially with the Pharisees, not over whether the law is good or not, but in the way that their intention around the law that they had made it into a thing unto itself, that it took on a life of its own, that it was being done um, not to please God or, or, or to bless other people, but basically then also to keep others out. There's a classic story about a silver spoon. Maybe some of you have heard it. There was an Episcopal church, and, and the, 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 the women of the altar guild every Sunday prepared the altar. Um, Presbyterians have a communion table, just so you know. We don't have an altar, but they, um, they prepared the altar, and they would, they would, they would shine. It would, you know, they had, they had um, silver plate, silver chalice, and then um, they had this silver slotted spoon. And so the women, they would always shine that, put it out there. Priests never used it. It just would sit there, and every week they'd go back and shine it. So um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was older women who'd been doing this for years, and they said, gosh, we need to, we need to, we need to recruit some new, new, new folks to help us. So they recruited a, a, a young woman in the congregation. She came, and she said, well, after a few weeks, she's like, why do we do this? The priest never uses it. She's paying very much attention. What, what's this about, this slotted spin? And, and so they said, well... The one woman said, well, my mom, you know, did this before me. I don't know. That's just what we do. I was just taught that's what you do. So, well, where's your mom? Well, she's in the, she's in the nursing home. Okay, well, let's go visit her. So I went and visited her. Well, what's the slotted spoon about? And the mom says, well, back when I was a child, we didn't have air conditioning. And we opened the windows. And there were flies. And the flies would jump into the chalice to drink the wine. And so the priest, before he, would, before he would drink out of the chalice, would take the slotted spoon and would dip out the flies so he wouldn't have to drink flies. 
but we've had air conditioning for 50 years. And we don't open the windows anymore. Well, that's sort of how I think Jesus, in, in, a, you know, in a more serious way, was challenging them that, that your rituals have just become empty. They don't have any meaning to them. They're not, they don't serve a purpose, really. You're just doing it because that's what you were told to do, not because it's, not because it's engaging you in this. But, but Saul was a faithful Pharisee. And in the book of Acts, you read about Saul leading the charge against these folks who were following Jesus. They were part of what was called the way. They weren't called Christians yet. Um, and anyway, Christians was a derogatory term when it was first used, just so you know. And, and so they weren't, they weren't called Christians yet. They were followers of the way. Most of them were still Jewish. So, so Paul was given a, sort of a, a sanction from the Sanhedrin to go out and to persecute and to, st- and to try to stop these people from spreading the news of Jesus. And so he, I mean, he witnessed and observed the stoning of, of, of a faithful follower of Jesus named Stephen. He was the one who sort of orchestrated that, um, we believe. He was, he was there witnessing it. Um, he, he tells the story on himself about the fact that he was the one out there persecuting Christians because he believed that that's what he was supposed to do. He thought he was being faithful uh, to, to God in doing that because he thought these were the, the law breakers. They were breaking the transaction. But then one day, he's going along the road to Damascus and, and, and riding some, sorm of, some form of uh, hoofed animal. And a blinding light comes and, and basically knocks him off of his mule or horse or whatever he's riding and blinds him. And he's made blind. And um, he gets taken to a town, and there's a follower of the way there named Ananias, and and Ananias receives a vision that he's supposed to go to Saul and supposed to minister to him. And Ananias is like, well, this this guy's been killing us. Like, what are you talking about? But he goes, and as Paul Harvey says, you know the rest of the story. After a few days, Paul is able to see, and he is a changed person. He is now a follower of Jesus. He now has come to understand the way and, and, and so much wants for his people to hear this message, but he is also a missionary to the Gentiles, to those who would have been seen as outside of that covenant transaction by many, to bring them in to this covenant. I think it's ironic that he is blinded in order so that he can see. God uses who he is, even though Paul would say, I was going the wrong direction. He uses that, what we might call disobedience, in order to bring many other people into the fold. And so in the 11th chapter of Romans, uh, as you know, we've been walking through Romans and and throughout the whole thing, it really, it's really a, a, a treatise almost on, you know, Paul's, um, Paul wrestling with, are, you know, are the, Jew, are the Jewish people still in the covenant? Are they still, uh, are, are they still saved? Are they still, uh, is God still favor them? All this sort of thing, even with this new teaching called the way. And so in Romans 11, he 
reiterates again, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He's talking about the Jewish people. And he says in the strongest, in the strongest possible terms in the Greek, by no means. I mean, this is like H-E double hockey sticks, no. I mean, this is, that's, a, that's the, the impact of it. it, it I mean, you almost can't get it strong enough. Um, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he says, I myself am, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And we skip a bunch of verses. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's that steadfast love. Just as you were once disobedient to God, now he's speaking to the Romans, mostly Gentiles, just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. This is an interesting thing that, that, that Paul does here, is he's saying, you know, the Jewish people went, went, went in the wrong direction. But God used that through his Son to open the floodgates, to welcome many more people into this covenant. You have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. It's sort of this circular logic. You've got to love Paul like it's crazy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. That's a crazy uh, sentence, isn't it? God has imprisoned all in disobedience that he might be merciful to all. The way I read that is that I am much more able to be graceful and merciful to somebody else when I realize the depth of my own messed upness. I'm much more able to be merciful and graceful to somebody else when I realize the depth of my brokenness, of my own disobedience, of my doing things that are not of the kingdom, that don't promote things that, that speak of the kingdom and God's steadfast love, even inadvertently. So Paul writes all that, and then he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. So if you're feeling confused, Paul's going, yeah, it's God is a mystery still. How this all works, what this does, is still, is still a tremendous mystery. But, but Paul says somehow he's using our disobedience in order to do, have mercy. As I read this and as I look at and I weigh that against all of Scripture and especially against the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, what, I, what I've come to see and believe is that God, our God, is not transactional. Our God is merciful and graceful. Our God is steadfast in love. For all of us. Because we don't perhaps get what we deserve with God. As Paul writes, I believe, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of God's desires for them. 
But God does not push us away. God does not ever shut us out. God is always waiting and inviting us back into that relationship that we have walked away from. And so my message out of this is to say to you, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've thought, no matter how broken you think you are, you are never outside of being held in God's steadfast love. Never. And that is a message that we Christians, we followers of the way, we followers of Jesus, need to communicate everyone that we can. That everyone is welcome in this covenant. That everyone is, is, that God is in everyone's life. We believe that. But that to, to let them know that God is in there, welcoming them into this covenant, into this new way of life, into this new life that isn't based on quid pro quo, that is based on a God who has made a covenant with us and will always fulfill that covenant. Yesterday, um, I officiated a a service, a celebration of life for a 27-year-old young man. On Monday night, he took his own life. And he, you know, I, I did not know him. Um, he's a, a, a dear friend of, 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 a, of a family here at the church. And, and, um, and so I was invited in to, to help with this service and, and, and did that. And it was, it was very powerful for me. And what was inscrutable, in, 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 inscrutable to me, un, un, understandable to me in some ways, was um, this young man was loved so deeply. He had a large family, caring family. He had a, a community around him that, that, that supported him and, and walked with him through things. And yet there was something in him, there was something in him that said, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve to live. I have no idea what was actually going on in his mind. Maybe no one will really understand. There's no way out. The things I've done aren't forgivable. I, I don't know. But there's too much of that sort of thing going on in our world now. Where even Christians are, are pushing people out. Telling them they are outside of God's love and mercy. Oh, you can be inside of God's love and mercy if you just do this. They make it transactional. I don't read that in the scripture. There's an invitation in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a free gift of grace to all people, inviting them to be healed and to walk with God in this steadfast love and mercy. And today, more than ever, people need to hear that. They need to hear that God has a place for them, that God created them in God's image, that they are holy and wonderful, and that no matter what they're going through, someone will understand and will know and will walk with them, and especially God. 
the door is always open. And that sometimes God uses the way we go off the path to bring us into a stronger relationship with God. God uses the way that we are disobedient, the ways that we don't live into the kingdom to wake us up to what the kingdom is all about. God can use anything for God's purposes. But his ways are often unsearchable and inscrutable. And so we seek to follow with faith and with hope and with love in the midst of all of this. And so today, I don't, know, I don't know what you might be going through. I don't know what a family member might be going through. I don't know what someone at your work might be going through. But don't ever believe that you are outside of God's mercy and steadfast love. God is holding you and will never let you down. Amen.